Welcome to the Christian Life Austin podcast. Today we continue our five-part Wednesday evening series entitled Beyond the Doors. In this series, we will journey through the doors of our church and learn how to represent Christ in society. With part three of the series entitled The Door of Forgiveness, here is Pastor Reed Johnson. How's everybody doing tonight? Good. Are you enjoying this series, Beyond the Doors? I, I've been here since April, and I think this is one of my favorite series that we've done. I've just really enjoyed this series. As Pastor said a couple of weeks ago, he kicked this whole thing off. And kind of our mantra, our quote that's been the foundation for this series is a quote by Tim Gable. He's a collegiate wrestling coach. And this is what Tim said. It's really, really good, really rich. This is our, kind of our mantra statement. I want to read it to you. It'll be on the screen for you. If this is important, do it every day. And if it is not, don't ever do it. I think that's so true. If it's important, let's do it every day and let's do it well. Let's do it with excellence. And if it's not important, then let's not worry about it. So two, two weeks ago, uh, Pastor Johnson kicked the whole thing off with the door of hospitality, ushered us through the door of hospitality. I thought it was the best sermon I've ever heard on that particular topic. It was fantastic. You're you're robbing yourself if you're not going onto our podcast and listening to that. If you haven't been to CLC Austin or if you weren't here that night, go and download that, that first sermon that kicked this whole thing off. And then last week, Pastor Brad opened the door of prayer. And I told Pastor Brad after it was over, I said, I've heard you preach numerous times. I think that was the best sermon I've ever heard you preach here. It was really, really rich, really good. And tonight, uh, I'm going to open the door of forgiveness. And crickets chirp. Isn't that great? night? <laughs> Yeah, I get it. Yeah, Brad gets the, the, the door of, of prayer, and I get forgiven. Nobody hates prayer. Everybody's for prayer. I've never heard anybody say, well, I hate prayer. Oh, i got to pray. Ah, never heard that. But forgiveness and every, crickets chirp. It's going to be a fun 40 minutes if we don't liven up a little bit, people. All right. So the door of forgiveness. But I'm excited about this. I actually chose this, and we started looking at these five things. We, we think these five things are huge doors, and just like, Tim Gable said, we believe these things should be done, done every day, and done with excellence. And so we want to look through the door of forgiveness, and if somehow someone in this room connects with this tonight, I believe if you'll walk through that door of forgiveness, you will find freedom like you've never found before. Now before we open the door, before we even unlock the door, I want to preface the whole night tonight with this simple statement, and I believe this with every fiber of my being. I believe that our relationship with God the Father is in direct relation to our relationship with other people he has put into our lives. Let me say that again. Our relationship with God, our relationship with God is determined by, is measured by, is graded on our relationship with other people he has put into our lives. And this is not just my opinion, this is all throughout scripture. In fact, I'll show you a couple of instances in Matthew. Uh, This will be on the screen for you in Matthew. Chapter 5, right in the middle of the Sermon on the Mount. Listen to what Jesus says in Matthew 5, 23. He says, therefore, if you are offering your gift at the altar, and there remember that your brother or sister has something against you, verse 24, leave your gift there in front of the altar. First, go and be reconciled to them. Then come and offer your gift. So even Jesus, that, that seems backwards to me. It seems like Jesus should say, well, offer your gift and then go reconcile with somebody else. He says, no, 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 no. I want you to reconcile with them before you come to me. I want you to reconcile with them before you come to, them, come to me. John, who hung out with Jesus a whole lot, said in 1 John chapter 2, verse 9, listen to this, this is what John says, anyone who claims to be in the light but hates a brother or sister is still in the darkness. 
So even John is saying, listen, you can't divorce these two things. They don't separate from each other. You can't love God and hate people. You can't hate people and love... They, they're, they're synonymous with each other. Jesus, in John 13, 34, and 35, it's one of the last things that he said to us before he went to the cross. He said to his disciples, and he says to us tonight, he says, a new command I give you, love one another. He says, as I have loved you... So you must love one another. And by this, everyone will know you're my disciples if you go to church regularly. No, that's not what he said. He says, by this, everyone will know you're my disciples if you read your Bible a little more often. No, that's not what he said. He says, everyone will know you're my disciples if you have love one for another. If you love one another. That's what Jesus said to his disciples. That's the identifying mark of the world will know that we are his by our love for other people. This one's not on the screen, but Jesus was asked in Matthew 22, what's the greatest commandment? The Pharisees were trying to trap Jesus, try to trick Jesus. What's the greatest commandment? He says, love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind, with all your strength. Love him with everything that you are. He says, this is the first and greatest commandment. And he said, and the second is like it. They didn't ask for the second, but he gave it to him anyway. So the second is like it. Love your neighbor as yourself. And I think the reason he gave the second is because it's synonymous with the, the first. You can't disconnect those two things. In order for the vertical to be right, the horizontal has to be right. We have to have both working. It's a both and, not an either or. And we see that all throughout Scripture. And I think one of the reasons he does that is because I could convince you that I have a good relationship with God, that I love Him with all my heart, with all my soul, with all because you can't see my heart, and you can't see my soul. You can't see what I do in private disciplines. You can't see those things. But you can measure... If I love my neighbor as much as I love myself, that's a measurable thing. And so we're wrestling with this and we're going, okay, God, well, obviously these two things are connected. The health and the maturity of my relationship with you is dependent upon my health and my maturity of my relationships with other people that you've put into my life. The lens through which we look at our relationship with God is the same lens that we look at our relationships with other people. So if you have your Bible, we're going to look at Ephesians chapter 4. So you can turn to Ephesians chapter 4. If you don't have a Bible, that's okay. We'll have it on the screens for you in a moment. But I love Ephesians. Paul is the writer of Ephesians. Many of you know Paul. Paul is, uh, he's a hero. He, he, he does so many great things in Scripture. But I love, so Paul was not a Christian when Jesus was on earth. He became a Christian after Jesus died, after Jesus was buried, and after Jesus rose again. So Paul became a Christian. He, he knew a lot of Christians. He had encounters with Christians. He had a lot of eyewitnesses that witnessed Jesus, knew him, and he knew them. He had this incredible experience that many of you know about that helped in his conversion. But he was a religious leader. He was a Jewish man. He was a philosopher. He's a brilliant theologian. And he becomes a Christian. But there was a problem because Paul, because he kind of denounced the Jewish way of thinking, well, the Jews didn't really like him. And the Christians didn't really like him because they were scared of him because he used to persecute them. And so he's got all these relational issues and he writes all these letters. He, he spent a lot of time in, in prison and in jail and he writes all these letters to all these churches in Europe. And we get to peer into one of the letters in Ephesus, that he wrote to Ephesus. And we're going to pick it up in chapter 4, beginning in verse 1. Listen to what Paul says. As a prisoner for the Lord, then I urge you to live a life worthy of the calling you have received. Now, calling there could mean invitation. Okay, the literal word could be translated as invitation. It says, live a life that is worthy of the invitation 
you have received? What, what invitation? The invitation to be in a relationship with God, a relationship where you have love and, and, and unconditional inclusion and unconditional acceptance and unconditional forgiveness. I want you to be worthy of the calling of the invitation to be in a relationship with a holy God. That's what he's asking us to, to be worthy of that invitation. If you went to college and you rushed, you went through rush to join a fraternity or sorority, you kind of know what that is. You accept the invitation to be a part of Kappa Kappa Alpha Delta Zeta. You, you, you accept that invitation. It's okay, I'm in. But you know there's going to be certain behaviors that will have to change in your life in order for you to be a part of that. When I joined this staff of Christian Life Church in, in April, I knew there would be different behaviors, certain behaviors that I'd have to exclude out of my life. And it, like, I can't just go into Walmart and be belligerent and vulgar. I can't do that, right? Well, I'm a, thank you, Jesus. I can't do that, right? When you accept an invitation, you've got to live a life that is worthy of the calling of that invitation. And, and so that's what he's asking us to do. Live a life, have certain behaviors in your life that are worthy of the calling that God has given to you. Paul's saying, for those of you who have said yes to God, along with this acceptance of the invitation are certain expectations. We're to live a life that is congruent with, in sync with the invitation. And then you'd expect him to say, don't miss church. Or read your Bible or pray more. But he goes right to relational stuff. Look what he says in verse 2. Be completely humble and gentle. Be patient, bearing with one another in love. Uh, wait a minute, this has something to do with family. So I've got to be gentle and patient and bear with family. This is, this is going to affect my work life. This is not good. This is, I mean, is going to come to me with work. I gotta be humble and gentle and patient and bear with unbearable people. And you say, well, what has that got to do with anything? And it has everything to do with everything because the maturity that we have in our relationship with God is a direct reflection of the maturity that we have in our relationships with other people that He's put into our lives. And so we do need to be these things. We do need to become these things to be worthy of the calling, to live a life worthy of the invitation, the unbelievable invitation that he's given to you. He says, what I have dispensed to you, I want you to then dispense to others. So the first thing he says here, let's just take this one by one. He says, be completely humble. Be completely humble. Well, I'm out. (laughs) It's hard to do, right? He says, be humble. But then you look at God, you look at what Jesus did. In Philippians 2, Paul writes that, he says, have the same mind as Christ Jesus, who being in the very nature of God, did not consider equality with God something to be grasped, but he made himself nothing. Taking the very form of a servant, being made in human likeness, being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself and became obedient to death, even death on a cross. So if Jesus is humbling himself, and then he's saying, this is what I want you to do to other people. Jesus put your life above his life. He puts your needs above his needs. He put yourself above his self, and he's asking us to return the favor. He says, I'm just asking you to do what I've already done for you. I'm equal to God, but I did not consider equality with God something to be grasped. I humbled myself and became obedient to death on a cross that he created. It's crazy. And he said, I want you to humble yourselves. I want you to humble yourselves. He said, well, she doesn't deserve it. She does not deserve it. You don't know what she did to me. You know, you, she talked about me on Facebook. 
She stabbed me behind the back. She took my man. Talk to the left because that ain't right. Come on. (laughs) She doesn't deserve it. She doesn't deserve humility. She doesn't deserve for me to go and serve her. And Jesus is going to say, that's the point. You didn't deserve it either. You didn't deserve it either. To live a life that is worthy of the invitation of a relationship with God is to do unto others as he has done unto us. Then he says, be gentle. I don't, I don't like that. Be gentle. If I die soon, I hope I don't, but if I die soon and you eulogize me at my funeral, I, I just hope nobody says, well, read, he was gentle. Don't, that's not... That rubs my manliness wrong, right? <laughs> you don't want to. You don't want to go into your, your work tomorrow, and your boss calls you and, "Hey, come here. Hey, shut the door. Hey, Ted, you're gentle. You don't want to hear that. That's weird. <laughs> but gentle, gentle can actually be translated here as self-control, because you're translated as self-control. And he says, when you're in a situation and you're tempted to power up. When you're in that situation where you're in control and you're tempted to power up, I want you to gear down. Just as God, when he saw this, the offense of our sin, he could have powered up. Ephesians 2, 3 says, all of us also lived among them at one time, gratifying the cravings of our flesh, following his desires and thoughts like the rest. We were by nature deserving wrath. God didn't gear up and give us wrath. He didn't give us what our sins deserve. He gave his son what our sins deserve. So instead of powering up, he geared down. And he says, I want to be gentle with your offenses. And that's what he's asking us to do, to be gentle with people, to have self-control instead of powering up to gear down. He says, I want you to be gentle. And he says, I want you to be patient. Oh, this is tough. I want you to be patient. You want to become patient? Focus on this. How patient Has God been for you? How many times have you run from him and he waited? How many times, how many promises did you break and he waited? How many times you say, okay, God, not again, 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 and you did it again. And he waited. How many times has he waited on us and been patient with us? see, He said, well, they don't deserve that. They don't deserve patience. Well, we don't either. And I want you to get so focused on this unbelievable relationship and you live a life that is worthy of that calling that you begin to view all of your relationship through these same lenses and you go, wow, God, you were humble with me. You were gentle with me. You were patient with me. And now, I want to be humble with others. I want to be gentle and self-controlled with others. I want to be patient with others. Paul is saying, for those of you who have said yes to God, along with this, you're supposed to have a different set of behaviors. Um, some of you have, have, are married, and, and you have, how many have a wife? Don't raise your hand, please don't raise your hand. You have a wife that runs late, okay? Okay, I got a couple of laughs. You know what I'm talking about, right? The wife is running late. You, you were supposed to be on time to church tonight. You're, you're, you had to sit on the front row because she didn't, she didn't get in the car on time. So you, had, you just got stuck where, amen. Uh, that's really not me at my house. Uh, my wife is awesome. I'm the one that's late. She can say amen to that. 
Um, every once in a while, it's usually where I want somewhere I want to go. It's it's rare. It's a rare occurrence at the Johnson House. But but I'll be waiting on her. We got the kids in the car, and you just you kind of want to tap that horn, don't you? You kind of beep beep. <laughs> but you know, if you tap the horn, she's just gonna sit down and read a magazine, right? She's gonna take her time, go back to the bathroom. She might even stick the head out the door and go. You just wasted 30 seconds. Why did you lean out the door? She go back inside. Right? So we're supposed to be patient with our wives. And you think about all the times that God has been patient and patient and patient and patient with us. He was patient with us through grade school. He was patient with us through middle school. He was patient with us through high school and through college and through single life and multiple spring breaks. And we're sitting there in the car wanting to honk the horn. How many times do you think God wanted to honk that horn? Hey! Hey, let's go. We have to be patient because God has extended patience to us. We can't do unto others as they deserve to be done unto. We can't do unto others as they have done unto us. We have to do unto others as he has done unto us. That's the only way that we can live. That is living the life worthy of the invitation of the relationship that he has given us. And then he says, bear with one another. Bear with one another, which really means to bear with unbearable people. Anybody have some unbearable people in your life? I mean, you can raise your hand on that one. Uh, you do. It happens, right? You love them, but they're, they're, it's just hard. They're just, it's just, there's some hard people, and you take three steps forward and seven steps back. It's just you don't see a lot of progress sometimes, and it's really, really difficult. People that just sometimes drive you crazy, and, and you just think about, well, how patient <laughs> my, my Heavenly Father bore with me all those times that I, myself, was unbearable. If you want to live a life that is in line with this amazing gift of salvation that God has given to you, he says that has to be your standard. And look at verse 3. He says, make every effort to keep, or you can, you can change that word out for guard, or some of your translations say preserve, make every effort to keep or guard or preserve the unity of the Spirit through the bond of peace. Because there's going to be people that are hard to work with sometimes. They don't act right. And you don't feel like there's progress. But work hard to keep unity. And, and then verse 4, 5, and, and 6. Listen to this last part. It's really deep and theological. But listen to it. It says, there is one body and one spirit. Just as you were called to one hope when you were called. One Lord. One faith. One baptism. One God and Father of all. Who is over all and through all and in all. And that's the hope and the comfort that I have when I have unbearable people in my life and I, I don't feel like I'm making any progress. I have a young lady in my life that has been in my life for about a decade and I feel like we're, we're, we're not any further than we were 10 years ago. And we talk about every other week. She doesn't live here. It's nobody in the room. Don't worry. Um, she doesn't live here anymore. And, and, and um, I feel like I just continually pour out to her. I don't feel like I'm getting any progress. But then I wrestle with this verse, these set of verses in Ephesians 4, and I say, okay, God, you're over all, and you're in all, and you're through all, and so I'm just going to trust that you're in this, and that you're over this, and you're, you're working through this, and that you're going you're gonna to make the progress happen. There are people in your life that five years ago would be shocked, would be shocked to find out that you're in church on a Wednesday night in October, and you're here, and they're frustrated, and they're throwing their hands up and said, there was no progress, there's no progress, there's no progress. And yet, here you sit. So there are people in your life that you feel like you're not getting anywhere with. And I'm just saying, hey, God's over all. He's in all. He's through all. So trust him and continue to bear with those unbearable people. 
When we as believers lose sight of the significance of the relationship, the invitation of this relationship with him, and all, despite all of our mess and all of our circumstances, when we lose sight of this invitation of the relationship with him, then all of our other relationships become troubled. Every single time it just happens. Because the maturity of our relationship with God is in direct connection to our maturity and our relationship with other people. If you're around me long enough, I can give you a reason to not like me. I can give you a reason to not forgive me. We're all that way, right? My, my best friend in the whole wide world, we've been best friends since we were three. We used to go to the lake when we were young and, and we'd spend four or five days together. We found out the magic number was three. We spend four days together. We don't like each other anymore. We need about a week apart and then we're good, right? If you hang out with me long enough, I can give you a reason to not forgive me. I can give you a reason not to like me. We're all that way. But we can't look at each other in, in the lens of how we feel like they deserve to be treated. Or, well, you treated me this way, so I'm going to treat you this way. We have to look through the lens of how did God treat me? How did God love me? It was inclusion. It was acceptance. It was unconditional love with no strings attached. When that's the focus, you'll be amazed at the patience you possess. You'll be amazed at the humility and you want to serve others more than you want to serve yourself. Our relationships are the true measure of our understanding what God has done for us through Christ. In 1886, there was a chemist named George Pemberton and he created an incredible product. Many of you have enjoyed it and uh, for the totality of your life and I have some of it right here. Oh yes, Coca-Cola. George Pemberton created this in 1886, 130 years ago, and it's so delicious. Uh, went to Atlanta, went, went through the, the entire, they've got the, you know, the world of Coke, and you can go through and see everything. Did you know, in a recent survey, they said that Coca-Cola, Coca-Cola is the second most recognizable symbol in the entire world. And I believe it. I believe it. It's, it's all over the place. I went to Bolivia in 2011, and you know, you're not supposed to eat certain foods or drink, or, or drink certain you can't drink water out of the faucet. So you're brushing your teeth and actually drinking out of a water bottle to wash out your mouth. I mean, you're just having to be very cautious about everything you eat and drink. And then I saw Coke. And the angels began to sing. Oh, you know, it's, like, it's a piece of home. I think I gained 45 pounds in pop. That's where this came from was this right here. I, I was so excited. I was so excited. They have a mantra at Coke, and it's not something they publicize, but this is kind of their mission statement. They said, we want to have a Coke within an arm's reach of everybody on the planet. That's their mantra. And they're not there yet, but they're closer than most. There is a symbol that is way more recognizable. It is the number one most recognized symbol in the entire world. you know what that is? McDonald's. <laughs> no. The cross. <laughs> McDonald's. It's third. I don't know. Yeah, you see this on hospitals. You see this on steeples. You see this on necklaces. You see it on bumper stickers. It's everywhere. It's everywhere. And I truly believe that when we embrace this symbol, we will fully understand how it is we're supposed to relate to other people. I think the symbol, the key to forgiveness and opening that door is understanding the story behind this simple. Have you ever had a time in your life, and I'm sure all of us have come up and share a story, where someone wronged you, where somebody harmed your reputation, where they stabbed you in the back, where they said some dirty things, where they, uh, 
Fill in the blank. Again, we could all come up and you're, it's even when I say that, you, you think of somebody. You think of something they said or something they did. And would you agree with me that how you handled that, it's, it's changed you. Like that, that, that moment has changed you somehow. Would you agree with that? Like you, you maybe lose sleep at night over it sometimes. You may avoid certain places. You know, I can just speak, I'll speak from a pastoral sense. One of the greatest and worst things that can ever happen in the life of a church is when two of you single people get together. We love it if it works out and you get married. We hate it when you have an ugly breakup. <laughs> it's not so bad at CLC because one of you can come to the 9 o'clock service and one of you come to the 11 o'clock service, so that works out. But in a smaller church, one of you is going to leave. It's just going to happen. We hate that. Like, oh, why'd y'all start dating? You know, that's just, it happens. I don't know why, it just happens. <laughs> Uh, but yeah, we do. We, 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 get in, we get in these relationships and, and for whatever reason, you know, things go bad. And, and would you also agree, would you also agree that when, when you respond to that, the way you respond also can shape you. The way you respond to however they harmed you can also shape you. Does holding a grudge really work? That's a really good question. Does holding a grudge really work? What I've come to find out in 35 years of life, what I've come to find out is holding a grudge, it, it doesn't. Because I'm holding a grudge against somebody else, but the person that is hurt the most by me holding a grudge is me. Yeah. The longer the hold, I hold a grudge, the longer the grudge has a hold on me. And a lot of times the person that's being held the grudge against doesn't even know you're holding a grudge against them. Ten years, uh, let's, see, let's see, seven years ago, it was ten, my 10-year reunion... I was 28, and uh, I, had, I got a letter in the mail from this girl named Alicia. Now, Alicia and I went to school together. We were in choir together. We were friends. We, she was an awesome young lady. We never dated or anything. We were just friends. And so I got this letter in the mail, and I'm reading this letter. And we had a mutual friend named Jonathan. Uh, Jonathan has, has cerebral palsy. Uh, he's confined to a wheelchair. He, he's kind of hard to understand unless you really know him and spend a lot of time with him. I love Jonathan. Jonathan and I hung out a whole lot. He loved he loved the Packers, Ruben. He loved the Packers. And we would watch the Packers, and we'd watch every Monday night football game. We'd get together. We'd watch the games together. And we had a blast. We hung out a lot. Well, apparently, one day, I don't even remember this. I don't even remember this. One day, I'd ask him to go to lunch, which was not uncommon. I'd take him to lunch every now and then. And, and so I asked him to lunch, and apparently, I broke the lunch date. I'm sure because a cute cheerleader asked me to go to lunch. I don't know. I'm pretty sure. Because I I would have just said, hey, let's go tomorrow, bro. And he would have understood, you know, so let's go. It's, I, don't know, I, don't remember the, I don't remember. I get a letter in the mail from Alicia 10 years after we graduated. And she said, I wanted to forgive you for breaking off your lunch appointment with Jonathan. And I wanted to ask your forgiveness of me that I've held this grudge for that long. And I'm reading this letter. I'm going, well, that's sweet. I don't know what she's talking about. <laughs> I don't remember that. But for 10 years, she held on to that. I saw her in the supermarket not that long after that, and I gave her a big warm hug, and I said, hey, Jonathan and I are cool, we're cool, thanks for the letter, that was super nice of you to write that. But you're holding these grudges, and a lot of time, they don't even know that you're mad at them. And the longer that you hold the grudge, the longer the grudge has a hold of you. Again, we have to start at the cross. There's a couple of misconceptions about the cross that I'd love to clarify tonight that may or may not be accurate with what you see here. According to Roman history, what we know about Roman history, the cross that Jesus was crucified on may or may not have been a lowercase t. 
may or may not have been a lowercase t. In fact, a lot of times the Romans would use an uppercase t. And so he might have been crucified on an uppercase t, but this one looks a lot more appealing and it's much more recognizable. Another interesting thing that you would see a lot of times with, with the cross in movies, it's depicted this way a lot. You'll see the cross about 15, 20, 25 feet in the air. And so the person's hanging there and you're, you're seeing the picture of Christ and they're way up high. But the reality is, what we know about Roman history is the cross was probably about 10 feet in the air. The person was, about, was really close to the ground. And there was a psychological reason on why they did that. There's a psychological reason on why they chose to do that. The Roman kingdom was trying to send a message to anybody and everybody that was there witnessing the crucifixion. They said, hey, come here. I want you to see this. I want you to hear this. I almost would love for you to taste this. I want you to experience this crucifixion. Because if you do not bow the knee, this too could be you. They're trying to send a message. The Roman kingdom was trying to send a message to anybody. Hey, watch your step. Well, there was another kingdom that was sending a very powerful message that day. It was the kingdom of God. And Jesus Christ... A lot of you know this, the scripture says this, but I want to say this for anybody in the room that's not heard this. Scripture says that Jesus Christ never sinned. It wasn't because he wasn't tempted. The Bible says in Hebrews he was tempted in every way we are tempted, yet he was without sin. Because he kept yielding his life to the will of God for his life. And so here's this sinless man, and he's saying, I'm the son of God. And the people who didn't believe him, the Jewish leadership, and they said, well, that's blasphemy. You can't say you're the son of God, so let's crucify this man. And so they took him and they beat him within an inch of his life. They took what's called a cat of nine tails and it had these metal prongs and all these glass shards and rocks and they'd slap it on his back and it would stick into his side and stick into his back and they'd rip it off and this would rip off strips of flesh. And just before he died, he says, enough. This guy's the king of the Jews. Let's put a crown on his head and they fashioned a crown made of thorns and they pressed it into his brow and blood flowed down his face. And they made him carry a super heavy cross about a mile, estimated a mile to, to Golgotha. And he gets there and they drive not nails but spikes through his hands and through his feet. Most people when they were crucified, they did not die from blood loss or from the nails. They died from what's called asphyxiation because they could not breathe because blood would begin to fill in their lungs. And so they'd have to push up just to catch a breath of air. Well, there's nothing to push off of except the nail that's in your ankles. And so they're pushing up just to catch a breath and they would often suffocate to death. And just to make sure he was dead, they stuck a spear in his side and blood and water flowed. Can you imagine... If you were there, right before he died, he's on the cross and you're looking into his eyes. You're up close. He's not 25 feet in the air. He's right there and you're looking right into his eyes. And you know why he's there. And he knows why he's there. It's not because of his offenses. It's because of your offenses. Second Corinthians 5.21 says, God made Jesus who had no sin to become sin for us so that in him, in a relationship with him, we might become the righteousness of God. So when God sees me one day, he doesn't see my sin and my mistakes and my mess. He sees the righteousness of his holy son. 
I've said this before, but if all I did was sin three times a day, if that's all I did was three times a day, three sins, that's all I did, three sins a day. I calculated this. I just turned 35, so it was easy to do. I would have sinned in my life, three, three bad thoughts, three bad actions. I would have sinned 38,346 times, 349 today, 38,349 times. And I was perfect on leap days. I didn't sin at all. I didn't want to do that math. 38,349 times I said, God, I'm always better than your way. I got this. And he's hanging on that cross. Can you imagine? You would never forget that picture. You're looking at his eyes and you see him. And now suddenly I, I receive that grace. I receive that forgiveness. I receive that mercy. And I want to not just be a consumer of that. I want to be a distributor of that. I don't want to just consume it. I want to dispense it. I, when you're at the cross and you fully embrace this cross, you understand forgiven people forgive. Forgiven people forgive. You're standing there looking at Jesus and you go, and 38,000 offenses against you. And I got 38 against this guy. And I won't talk to him. I won't give him the time of day. I don't love him. I ignore him. Now, he hurt me. I'm not making light of that. Paul says in Romans 12, he says, do not repay anyone evil for evil. I'm not saying what happened to you wasn't evil. But you just think about the cross. And once you embrace the cross, you see the the bigness of what Christ did for you. It's pretty easy to say, okay, I'm going to cancel your debt as well. Thank you, Jesus. Thank you, Jesus. My temptation is to do to others as I feel they deserve. My temptation is to do to others as they've done to me. And Christ says, no, do to others as I have done to you. And if you'll do this, it will have a ripple effect in all of your relationships. You'll begin to think, how can I treat anyone any less than the Father has treated me? Yeah, they're not worthy of forgiveness. Yeah, they're not worthy of my respect, but neither was I. Neither was, none of us were. I'm going to skip down for the sake of time. We're going to skip down to the end of this passage, the very last part of Ephesians 4, verse 31. Listen to what Paul says here. He says, get rid of all bitterness, rage, and anger, brawling and slander, along with every form of malice. Paul's sympathetic, isn't he? He's like, you got anger? You got malice? You got slander? Just get rid of it. Just get rid of it. Get rid of it. If you're here today and you're bitter or angry, just get rid of it. That's what he says. Just get rid of it. To which we say, well, I don't know how at times. And at times, if I'm honest, I don't really want to get rid of it because I like being angry at who's mad at me, who's hurt me. I enjoy being mad at them. And why would we take Paul seriously? Well, there's two reasons I think we take Paul seriously in this passage. Number one is he's not writing to us from Cancun. Okay, he's writing from a Roman prison. He's writing from a Roman prison. Again, the Romans don't like him, so he could could be angry with the Romans. The Jews don't like him. He could be angry at the Jews. The Christians aren't helping him. He could be angry at the Christians. He has a right to be angry at God here. And he says, no, if you got anger, you got slander, you got malice in your life, get rid of it. So have you ever been in a situation where you've seen somebody who's had a difficult time, they're going through a difficult circumstance, and they don't just survive it, but they thrive in it? Doesn't that kind of pique your curiosity a little bit? You're like, what, what, what's the secret? What are you doing? I remember there was a young lady, a young lady, she was an older lady named Carolyn, and she uh, got cancer from head to toe, was incurable, inoperable. 
But this lady had the joy of the Lord that was her strength. She just smiled and had a peace. And I'll never forget Carolyn Cox. I I just thought, man, this woman, how is she smiling all the time? She just loved Jesus, and she was never bitter. She was never angry. And I hope that I can respond in that situation if I ever had a difficult circumstance as she did. We've been there where we see somebody and we're like, wow, that's really cool. You see Paul writing this letter to Christians who are ignoring him for the most part and saying, hey, swelling, yeah, yeah, anger, malice, let's get rid of it. And the second reason I think we can trust Paul is he seems to believe there's a chance we can get rid of it. I mean, there's times where I get so angry and I get so upset and I get so frustrated that I'm like, I, I don't know if I could ever get over this. And Paul seems to believe that there's a chance that we could. Paul might be crazy enough to say, hey, this could work. This could work. You say, well, how does that, what does that look like, Paul? Well, for us, I'm sorry, I'm losing my notes here. Hang tight. Here we go. The risk is low for us. The risk is low to say, okay, maybe I can get rid of my anger. Maybe I can get rid of my malice. Maybe I can get rid of my slander. Maybe I can get rid of my bitterness. Maybe I can. The risk is low, but the payoff is high. And then he leads us to the solution. Look at verse 32. This is the last verse. He says, be kind and compassionate to one another. Be kind and compassionate. And compassionate, the Greek word there, literally means, this is kind of gross, but it says to to have strong bowels. So he's saying having some intestinal fortitude. Okay, buck up. Come on. Make an effort. Don't continue to allow what happened in the past to dictate your present and or your future. Don't allow that to get... Buck up. Have some intestinal fortitude. How do we get rid of it? And look at what he says. This is the last part of the verse. Forgiving each other. Forgiving each other. I love that. That's what we do. We just forgive each other. We forgive each other. There are two Greek words for the word forgive. And Paul uses the, the rarer one, the one that is less used in Scripture... And it literally translates as this, that we're constantly making a decision to give the gift of forgiveness. To dole out, he hurt me, I give you forgiveness. You talk bad about me, I dole out the gift of forgiveness. She wronged me, I give the gift of forgiveness. It's a, it's a constant doling out of the gift of forgiveness. And forgiveness is a decision. Let me say that again. Forgiveness is a decision. Forgiveness is a decision. Forgiveness is a what? Forgiveness is a decision. I didn't hear you about any. Forgiveness is a decision. forgiveness is a decision. Forgiveness is a decision. And the word that Paul uses here is a decision to continually dole out forgiveness. Even when they don't deserve it, I'm just going to keep giving that gift of forgiveness. When I have people tell me, oh, I, I, I've tried to forgive them. I kind of think in my head, well, you probably don't understand forgiveness then. Because I don't try to make a decision. I make a decision. And if I make a decision, I'm going to forgive you. Then I'm at, well, well, what are we forgiving? What is the decision to do? It's a decision to cancel the debt. Because when somebody wrongs you, this is, this is what we got to wrestle with. When someone wrongs you, it's, they've stolen something from you. They've taken something from you. They've robbed you of an opportunity. Well, if my mom or my dad hadn't walked out on me when I was younger, then I would have grown up in a two-parent household. And they robbed me of an opportunity to have a normal family life. If my husband or my wife had not left they robbed me of an opportunity to finish out with the person I started with. They rob you of something. And we have these things. And it's important for us to identify what that debt is and for us to cancel 
that debt. What's taken from you? Forgiveness is a decision to say, I realize you took this from me, but I made a decision. You don't owe me anymore. I'm not going to wait for you to say, I'm sorry. I'm not going to, to go through the issue of blame. I'm making a decision. Debt canceled. Debt canceled. And this is where we run into a wall because in the flesh we go, well, I, 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 I don't want to do that. They don't deserve that. If I just let them off the hook, if I say debt canceled, then they're off the hook and they get off scot-free. And Jesus is saying, yeah, that's kind of the point. That's what I did for you too. You see, when we get to heaven one day, we're not going to say, oh, wow. God, look, streets of gold and how beautiful everything is. God, I can never repay you. And you know what he's going to say? You don't have to repay me. There's nothing to repay. Debt's canceled. We're good. I love that. We don't owe God anything. He has done it for us. He's forgiven us. The debt has been canceled. It's over. And we have that same responsibility to live a life that is worthy of that invitation to say, okay, I'm making a decision. Debt canceled. You've been invited to a relationship with a holy God. And I love the end of the verse. Look at the end of the verse. Verse 32. Be kind and compassionate to one another, forgiving each other. There it is again. Just as... In Christ, God forgave you. Forgiven people forgive. And I know the pushback. Some of you are going to read again. You don't know what's happened in my life. I don't. But I do know that we have had strong offenses towards God. We owed him a whole lot. And he said, debt canceled. Debt canceled. I want to give you three phrases that I think can help us make this practical, as practical as possible. And we'll, we'll close out. Number one, you need to identify who you're angry with. Identify who you're angry with. Now, that's the easy one. (laughs) This is the person that you're driving to work and you're having the fake conversation with, the imaginary conversation with in your head, and it's always going your way. You're like, and this, and this, and this. You're like, oh, you're right. You're so good. I'm sorry. Yeah, I owe you. That's that's the conversation you play back in your head. It's for you to, to, to know and to realize who it is that you're upset with, who you're angry with. And, and you can't say, well, I, I, just, I, I know who it is, and I, but I just don't want to mess with them. I don't want to talk to them anymore. No, no, no. Ignoring a debt is not the same as canceling a debt. So I need you to identify who that person is. And then number two, I want you to determine what they owe you. Now, this is a big one. This is the thing that I think is going to find, the, the freedom that you're going to find in this whole process is if you determine what they owe you. Some of you haven't even wrestled with that of what it is that they took from you, what it is that they robbed from you, what it is you felt like you lost as a result of their offense against you. What do they take from you? What specifically do they owe you? What is the debt? Was it, was it a reputation? Was it some source of finances? Was, was it a marriage? Was it your childhood? What did they take from you? What is the offense? And that, that might take some time. You might have to wrestle with that for a week and write everything down. Okay, what is it that I felt like that I actually lost? What am I upset about? And then number three, you decide, because forgiveness is a decision, you decide to cancel the debt. You decide to cancel the debt. Forgiveness is a decision. So I'm going to give you an exercise. Here's what I want you to do, a little application. I want you to go home, if this is something you're wrestling with. I want you to take a three-by-five three by card. Maybe you take a stack full of three-by-five cards, and I want you to write down, you don't have to write down the person's name, they're up here, but I want you to write down the, what you feel like that you lost in that. What you feel like that... that they owe you. 
I want you to write that down on those cards. And again, take a week to do this. As you're driving down the road, don't do it while you're driving down the road, but stop and then write it down. Or you're, you're laying in bed, that's the time where my mind, my, my wheels are turning. Write something down. And when you feel like you've compiled that list, then I want you to have some kind of a ceremony. I mean, I want this to be special for you. I want you to take that, put them in an envelope, and, and, and burn it. Or, or maybe you put a cross on it, you, you bury it in a drawer. Uh, maybe you bury it in the yard. I, don't, just, I, want you, I want you to do something where you say, okay, God, I've recognized who the person is. I've recognized what, the, what it is I feel like I've lost. And I'm making a decision to cancel the debt. And I'm going to bury it. I'm going to burn it. I'm going to stick it far away. And then what happens is, is, is you forget, but you don't forget. So every time that that memory comes up of that person or the offense, and you think about that, every time that happens, that's just your cue to shift your mind from the source of pain to the source of your forgiveness. It's okay, God. I buried that. I canceled that debt. It's over. It's done with. And I'm going to recognize the source of my own forgiveness and the reason I'm able to forgive others. Just as you forgave me. I'm going to ask the worship team to come up. And we're going to close that in worship. I'll close with this. I want you to imagine for a moment. And some of you don't have to imagine because you've already lived through it. But I want you to imagine for a moment that you got diagnosed with cancer. Again, some of you have already wrestled with that or are wrestling with that, and I, I can't imagine. I've had family members that have gone through that, and it is ugly. But I want you to imagine for a minute that you got diagnosed with cancer. And in that moment when you get that diagnosis and you're sitting in the doctor's office, you, my guess is, are not going to spend hours upon hours upon hours talking to the doctor about the source of your cancer. You're not going to say, well, was it a family thing or was it because I held my cell phone to my head too many times? Or like, what's the reason that I got this? You're not going to be talking about the source of the cancer. You want to talk about how to what? Get rid of it. How do I get rid of this? How do, what, what can I do? Is there treatment? Is there something I could do? And bitterness is much like a cancer, isn't it? Because it begins to s- spread and eat at you. And instead of us focusing on the source, let's focus on the solution. Instead of us focus on the source, oh, I'm so mad. Focus on the solution. Okay, God. Here's the offense. Canceling the debt. They don't owe me anymore. Here's what I'd love to do. I would love, we gotta, we're at the end of time, but I, I want to spend a few minutes here. I'm going to ask our prayer team to come, and we're going to pray for you. Because I know as we started talking about this, when you heard the door of forgiveness, some of you uh, in your gut were like, I just kind of want to leave. Because <laughs> you know, you know, you know that you know this is difficult, and you know this is going to maybe be a difficult conversation for you. You may not even have the ability to have a conversation with someone else, but even that burying or burning that indebtedness, that, that's going to be a difficult time for you because you've carried this for so long. But the longer you hold the grudge, the longer the grudge is going to have a hold of you. And again, if we'll fully embrace this cross, if we'll fully embrace what Christ did for us, forgiven people forgive. And you just go, God, how can I treat anyone else any less than the way that you have treated me and my offenses against you.
and your holiness. So everybody stand to your feet. We're going to worship just for a few moments. But if that's you and you say, I, I need strength. I need strength because I, I know this is going to be difficult for me. This is something I've wrestled with for a long, long time. And I want to overcome it. I want to overcome. I want to cancel that debt. We want to pray for you. We want to pray for you. Maybe there's something else that God's dealing with you that we haven't even discussed, but you've just been sitting there stirring in your seat because God is wrestling with something internally. We want to pray for you. That's what we're here for. We love you. We want to pray for you. Let's worship together and uh, come if God's calling. And that concludes today's message. Please visit clcaustin.com for the latest news, to register for an upcoming event, or to support the Christian Life Ministry through our online giving portal. Thank you for listening.